1: The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel, here with maitre d' of the moment, John Winterman of Three Michelin Star Danielle Restaurant here in New York. Welcome to the show, John.
3: Thank you very much, Michael.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Um, John's been around. John's been in restaurants for years. I've seen him as the gatekeeper, as the man, you know, in front of that coveted table from Cafe Belude now at danielle's flagship restaurant on east 65th street and i still have no idea what a maitre d does it's kind of one of these almost antiquarian elusive terms in the restaurant industry uh and when i was doing a little bit of research about this show i realized that maitre d uh, was actually maitre d hotel and it was master of hotel then moved into restaurants
3: therewith. but w- what is your definition of what you do well, the matri d' term, uh, maitre dutel, is actually, I think, translates literally as master of the house. Um, what, a, what I do is, I think, a little bit different, or quite a bit different, I should say, from a, a traditional matri d' in that uh, at Danielle, we have this sort of uh, vortex of information running through that front door, and part of that is due to, I think, the internet and open table uh, and all these different options that people have that they didn't have before. I mean, in essence, you can say I plan the book and the seating and I figure out where the parties are going to go. And I I keep the flow of the night um, where the kitchen has time to produce the food and the product. The captains and the the service team have time to take care of the tables in the best possible way. Um, We stagger the seating, of course, like any restaurant does uh, to make sure all this is timed out perfectly. Uh, But beyond that, we have to take care of people wanting to buy bottles of champagne for an anniversary and they're calling in from California or people having flowers delivered or the, the, the one that's come up a lot recently, uh, has been proposals. Uh, not that those haven't happened before, but for some reason, Danielle has become this, this, uh, place for people to propose Yeah. and do this life changing event, And, you know, I have to make sure this goes off without a hitch. And, uh, she says yes. And it goes off seamlessly. Yeah. And
2: I think it goes off with a hitch.
3: It, it does yeah. it actually. <laughs> You're right. um, we also have to deal with a lot of regulars, obviously, that Danielle's been cooking on the Upper East Side for more than 30 years, and he's got some clientele to go all the way back. And we're also finding we're in the second and third generation of that clientele. Like the grandchildren at this point are, you know, university age or post university, so they're starting to come in and really support us as well. Yeah. Um, I have to manage a team of six, and I, Danielle always tells stories about how, like, oh, you know, Cereal uh, from Le Cirque. He used to walk around with a business cards and rubber band, and I keep telling him it's you know it's not one line in a notebook anymore. It's it's uh, I'm sorry one one phone line in a notebook. It's six phone lines going, and then a private number, and then Danielle's office, and his <laughs> two assistants, and a, an in house PR, and all this this incoming we have to manage. Yeah, I mean, how have all
2: these new modes of communication? I mean, I'm even including Facebook and Twitter, complexed your life.
3: Um, you know, I I I do it to myself honestly. <laughs> I. I welcome it. I, I take calls. Uh, people have my, my, uh, cell phone number. I get text messages for reservations. I get Twitter reservations, requests on Facebook. We get people posting resumes to me that, you know, I don't even really deal with that. Yeah. Um, it, it complicates it in the way that it, it's, you know, I don't want to, uh, uh, exaggerate this too much, but it's almost like a 24 hour a day job at this point. Yeah. Um, and even today on my day, if I get a number from unrecognized, uh, I got a call from an unrecognized number and uh, it was somebody I'm not going to name. It was an actor that i had given my card to two years ago <laughs> at Cafe Balut And he's like, Oh yeah, I want to try to come into Danielle tomorrow night. And so, you know, what can I say? Yeah. I'm not going to tell him I don't work today. I'm off. Yeah. I tell him like, Hey, no problem. Tell me how many people and what time. Yeah. So, you know, I've made myself accessible, but you know, all this new media, really everybody becomes accessible.
2: Yeah. It's controlling chaos. Now
3: they, they expect, instantaneous results because you're always available by text message and e- email.
2: Yeah. I mean, do you turn your phone off? Do you sleep?
3: Uh, I actually literally, I, it's a, a little bit like Mel Gibson, a lethal weapon. He slept with his gun under his pillow. I've yeah. got my phone <laughs> under my pillow. I, I literally do. And, and, um, part of it is we, we get a lot of requests from overseas. Uh, we have, uh, a, a really large clientele, strangely from Australia, uh, from Spain, from Brazil. And we have uh, an email, uh, info at Danielle uh, Reservations. And people send emails to that all the time. And they're always forwarded to me, like, what are you doing for New Year's? What's your pricing for this? Are you available for Valentine's Day? When do you open your books? What's the dress code? And I try to answer things, you know, not, maybe not in the middle of the night all the time. But I do try to answer things on a timely basis.
2: Yeah. So how did you get this system in your head? How did you start making some kind of protocol to, you know, uh, take this information and organize it.
3: Um, honestly, open table helps with that because it does offer a program in which to, uh, keep track of people and the number of visits and, and allergies and things like that. Um, uh, we also keep track of what people spend on wine and what their food preferences are, but the system really started, um, if I can go back probably to like 95 or 96, And I started to uh, work the front door at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago. And I remember the third time this gentleman came in, uh, I had asked him what he wanted to drink. And the manager at the time, Mitchell, was behind me. He said, he drinks a gin martini up every time. When are you going to learn this? (laughs) And I started to pay attention to that after that. Like, you know what? These people have certain tastes and certain uh, needs that they want fulfilled. And at that point, it was really memory-based yeah, and you try to put a, a name and a, a face with what they like and what they've had. Um, Were
2: you good at that game as a child? Memory? Not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> no,
3: no, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, but there, there are little, little tricks you do and little, little uh, gives that people have, and you know, you start to, you start to pay attention to it. Yeah, I mean, well,
2: this sounds very much like poker. What, what gives? Do you look for?
3: Um. I don't know. I, I know how to answer that question because very, very much what I do is of the moment. Yeah. And people have asked me like, well, what do you say in a given situation? And often I can't tell you on the spot what I say in a given situation. But if you're there with me in that situation, for some reason, I'm able to sweet talk people and talk them off a ledge when they're really upset about a 15 minute wait for a table or a 30 minute wait for a main course. Um, I've even had one regular tell me um, when he was upset one night that the only person in the world other than me w- to, uh, has the ability to calm him down uh, would be his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I I actually uh, took that as a great compliment. Yeah. as he was extremely upset and he was never going to come back. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I spoke wrong. Maybe it's not a give. Maybe it's not a tell. It's, uh, but it, maybe you just watch for patterns yeah. with people. Um, I think one thing I have to be careful of, and I think anybody in this business has to be careful, is you see a pattern, but you also have to allow the guest to change your mind. So if you think they're going to have a gin martini every time they walk in, don't be surprised if they decide to order a glass of white wine instead or a glass of champagne or a different cocktail. And we we have quite a few people like that. So we know back and forth like what they like in general. Yeah. So we can keep track of that too.
2: So you don't presuppose anything?
3: Uh Yeah. I, I try not to make any assumptions. That's, that's a very dangerous, thin ice game to play, I think.
2: Yeah. But I mean, there yeah. must be some regulars. You say that. Danielle's been on the upper east side for thirty years. Yeah, that have not strayed away from what they do every day.
3: There are a couple left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, once we went through the renovation in two thousand eight, and we completely changed the menu, um, we probably honestly lost a couple people. Um, and given the time he's been on the upper east side, I, I think just through I'm going to use a nice word here, attrition. Yeah, <laughs> we probably <laughs> lost a few other people. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there are some people who don't stray. But, you know, when he changed his signature dish that was from Le Cirque, the Popieta Black Sea Bass, and he took that off the menu and he did a very, very modern uh, version of it, a lot of people uh, didn't like that. But then again, you know, Danielle was very, very much in tune with wanting to stay relevant and wanting to attract new clientele as well.
2: Yeah. So you've so. mentioned Charlie Trotter, who you worked mm-hmm. for for years. Gary Danko as well. Right. Um... I mean, the, these guys are linchpins of the industry. What attracts you to that sort of service?
3: What attracts me is the, I think the idea of working for, uh, and I always call them like the eccentric chef owner, but that's somebody that's there every day. There's somebody that has their heart and soul in it. There's somebody, there's the, the chain of command is is essentially you and that chef owner. Um, and at Danielle, we're big enough to have an in-house PR and an in-house HR and we have a director of operations, et cetera, et cetera, but... Uh, very, very often, it's still just Danielle and myself, or the general manager and Danielle and myself, and the chain of command is we make the decisions on a day to day and a week to week basis. I mean, obviously, a matre d. I don't have the hand in, you know, what the payroll is going to be, um, but we do have a hand in, or I do have a hand in the day to day operation and how to seat that dining room and how to take care of the guest. And you know, Danielle makes himself accessible for that.
2: Yeah. So prior to working to these, I think all Michelin starred restaurants. Um, what kind of restaurants did you work in prior were there more mom and pop were there you know there there had to be a beginning leading up to this
3: uh there was um my first restaurant job i shouldn't even say it It was uh, in <laughs> southern indiana It was a place called scuffle town saloon but there it was you know you 16 years name old. again the scuffle town saloon <laughs> yeah it was like fried catfish i want to see deal. a
2: reprise of that someday
3: uh, the whole place burned down It does yeah. isn't you know but um we, uh, I was a buster and the liquor laws in Indiana are a little bit different. So there's a restaurant up front for families and then a tavern in the back for, for the bar. And, you know, like as a buster at 16 years old, I wasn't allowed to go in the back at all. In fact, the one time I stepped back there and the state excise police happened to be in and check my ID and yeah. made me go back up front. Um, but I think the, the, the place that really got me interested in this business, I worked for a restaurant called Cafe Alpine in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I'd gone out there after school to ski. And the, uh, the two owners at the time, uh, Tom and Teresa, were not chefs, were not even a chef-driven restaurant, um, but really took heart in what they were doing. They hired some guys in the kitchen they could produce very good food, but you know, nothing that we're, we're we're talking about today. Um, and they did have to cater to a, a very seasonal, uh, ski-oriented crowd, and a lot of tourists, uh, but they were smart enough, I think, to take care of their regulars really well. Knew that the 7,000 year-round restaurants were going to be the ones that support them in... Uh, April and May and and September, October, when there was no tourists and no snow. Um, And they they took a really, I think, uh, sort of a keen interest in their staff. And I remember even closing one day the restaurant entirely, and they took everybody down and rented vans and went to a baseball game in Denver and went out for pizzas afterwards. And uh, we had a a softball team. But their sense of hospitality, of how they took care of the locals, really, really got me the right way.
2: Yeah. I mean, do you have that in Danielle? Do you have a softball team, per se?
3: No, we don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't think we have any team at all. But that would be an interesting idea, actually. If yeah, we could, yeah. Like Danielle versus Perse or something. Yeah. But
2: well, I've seen I've seen soccer matches. I think between some of the.
3: Yeah, I, I know some of the guys had some soccer matches in the past, but. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost too American for that.
2: <laughs> so how do you team build? I mean, how do you build that community within a restaurant? Because it's not just you being this kind of dogmatic, you know, uh, overseer of the staff. You you want to be able to talk to these people on a level that you know doesn't just seem like a job.
3: Well, uh, some of it is you know, you you have to empower the people that are you're working with. And I never really refer to uh my team at the front desk as my staff or anything like that. They they're that's that's the team. We're all one team and we uh, and I told them in the beginning 2 years ago that we're going to make mistakes together and we're going to succeed together, but not one person is standing above another. Um, and what I do as well is, you know, back in the, uh, there was a time where let's say the, the, uh, the lady answering the phone wasn't allowed to give away a manager slot as a reservation. Um, and the maitre d' used to come in to have 16 phone messages or 20 phone messages and 10 voicemails. And there are all these people who would call at 10 in the morning to come in that night or the next night. And everybody knew you're going to say yes to the reservation. You're going to take them. They were regulars and all that stuff. Um, but yet for some reason, they would make them wait for four or five hours until the maitre d' came in to make it official. And I, I just thought that was ridiculous. I thought, well, why not? they they know who the regulars are. They know who yeah. we're going to say yes to. They know how busy the night is. They know how to manage a book just as well as I do. And so I handed it over to them. I'm like, look, I'm not going to be here until two. That's my schedule. You don't want to make somebody who's super busy wait for a phone call back. Um, and you know, I let them sort of take that responsibility and say, this is our book. It's our system. It's our restaurant. We yeah. know how to do this together.
2: Well, delegation is also this new sense of responsibility Right. that that I wouldn't call it, you know, you're sending up some kind of a, a hierarchy, but once you delegate, then you not only have a trusted staff beneath you, mm-hmm. but you're taking care of that much more.
3: Right. They, they also know that when we do make mistakes, we'll take the blame together. They also know that when they're, let's say, people can unjustly criticize a certain part of the team if the night goes wrong. Um, and I'm very much there to defend them, uh, and I will I will uh, stand up for them at all times. And I think at this point I've got a team that will pretty much lay down in traffic for each other. Yeah. So, but I mean, part of that comes with the recognition that whatever my experience is, somebody else has a different experience, and somebody's experience might be better or more complete, or they worked for a different chef, or they worked in Europe, or they went to a hotel school. Um, and there's also the recognition, and I remember being. You know, 24 when I first started Trotters, just being in awe of certain people that had all this experience and all this knowledge and, you know, learning what certain wines were the first time. And the first time I tasted Foie Gras as an example. Um And there's, there's a, I sort of have to, I think, acknowledge that I'm sort of a little older now and a little bit more experienced and there's guys coming in who are 22 and 24 and completely in awe of what I've done. Yeah. And that's that's kind of fun to impart that knowledge it's It's easy enough to criticize and tell people they don't know what they're doing and make somebody cry and get somebody upset and then they quit and go work somewhere else. but I think it's uh you've got to be careful that you have to work with uh you're working with people who might someday be the next Danielle as an example yeah, and if I may go on, I used to work uh when I worked at Trotters, I worked with a really quiet guy in the kitchen that nobody that he hardly ever said a word, and he was there for maybe maybe nine months, I think it turned out it was Grant Dockett's. <laughs> So Yeah That's just one example I worked with a lot of talent At restaurants But you have to recognize Right now That there's a 20 year old guy Or girl out there Who's probably going to be That next talent
2: Cool On that We're going to take a quick break uh, And enjoy a little DC For John's <laughs> listening pleasure You've been listening to The Food Scene On HeritageRadioNetwork.com We'll be right back Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. You're just listening to ACDC's What's Next to the Moon. this little fun song during the break. Now, John has been with Danielle for, what was it, about six years?
3: Um, almost six and a half now.
2: Six and a half years. How have you seen the New York or Manhattan dining scene change uh, from your perspective?
3: Well, when I moved here from San Francisco... Uh, you know, like, our two, our three restaurants, Bar Balud, DBGB, and Balud Sud, and, and the Epicerie, I might add, were just not even in the works at that point. Uh, at that point, it was, what, 2005? Like, Gordon Ramsay was opening. I think Morimoto was coming here. They were talking about all these chefs coming here, all these new things. And and uh, I think dining at the time was at a very, very high level. Um, and there were people putting a lot of money into fine dining. Uh, and, and Danielle was still, at that point, even... Two or three years away from renovating his own restaurant, uh just to stay, I think, ahead of the game. But I think where it's turned the past two years has really been this really this push toward comfort food, which is all well and good. Uh I, I, I love fried chicken like anybody else. I like oysters and the half shells. In fact, I love oysters and the half <laughs> shells. Um But honestly, like I there's I think an art is lost and a finesse is lost. Um, and one place I, I really need to go right now is Isa because I feel like they're maybe like the first in like a new generation of restaurants to put finesse back into the food and, and take a chance without overstepping those bounds into molecular gastronomy.
2: Yeah, and you were talking about the chef owner. Um, are there other places, kind of in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, that are that new hopeful legacy of these restaurants?
3: Well, Isa is one thing I mentioned, uh, which I haven't been to yet. Uh, I'm not, you know, it's not even a chef driven restaurant, but I love Maison Premier. Yeah. Um, mainly for my love of oysters, uh, a chef driven restaurant I really enjoy right now would be, uh, Reset with Jesse Schenker. Yeah. And you know, I, I think he, uh, after, I don't know how long he's been open now, a year and a half is starting to feel the constraints of being in such a small space and only I think 40, 45 seats. But uh, I think that guy has a lot of talent and he's, he's doing something that nobody else is doing right now. And he's really thoughtful about what he's putting on the plate. Um, a place that I really enjoy would be the Dutch as well. But again, he's really gone into the comfort food, mm-hmm. uh, the regional American food, which I love. I think I've been there like 16 times since it opened. Um, but at, what I'm looking for now is is a place that has finesse. And and not only does the chef have the palate, but he has the artist eye. Yeah, And I think that's been lost a little bit
2: aside from that i mean you must also look towards other front of the house operations um who do you admire in the industry right now
3: that's a good question um would it be too much for the home team if i, if I admire my roommate no 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 yeah. no not at all as i think uh doing what well uh, who is your roommate my roommate is belinda chang yeah <laughs> lovely james beard award-winning uh sommelier yeah And I think she and Damon Wise were given the nearly impossible task of turning around uh, the monkey bar. And Damon's implemented an amazing menu with, a I think, made it very, very accessible to people with a lot of different flavors and textures going on. And again, he has like an artist's eye for the plate, so what he's doing is really special. Um, But I think turning a a staff around and, and getting them to understand that service can be special and service can be personal in the span of I think two and a half months is is nearly a uh, it's almost a pipe dream yeah to be able to do that and she pulled it off and they got a really glowing two stars re, two star review from the times and um I mean that's somebody that's that's I admire that sort of dedication there yeah in the front of the house that you know maybe it doesn't mean much to uh, to certain people they're not going to notice that you're putting down the plates at the same time and um but I, I think I think it does uh, enhance the experience for people
2: yeah because I mean. I, I know that two and a half months is an absurdly short period of time to do that. But what is the right amount of time? I mean, is it six months? Is it a year? When do you expect service to be as you want it?
3: You, actually, you don't. You, you're really doing this on a night-to-night basis. So however great your service was the day before, whatever review you got, whatever Zagat says about you, whatever Michelin says about you, that stuff doesn't matter the next day. Because there's a whole new set of people in there that you have to do it for. You have to play the game over again. You have to go on stage again. And you have to do it right again. Because honestly, like any of these chefs, any of these front of the house people, any of these sommeliers, we're all like really just one mistake away from humility, I think. Yeah. And you have to carry that night to night. You have to get excited about night to night. So if I go in tomorrow and I get a really nice email that says, thanks, we had a great time. If we get a nice letter, thanks, we had a great time. I pass it on to the staff. Good job. We have to do it again. Yeah. And so every night you have to make sure your service is on point.
2: I mean, what were some of the worst problems that you had that you did rectify? I mean, have there been crazy walk-in situations where you thought you just weren't going to be able to recover?
3: We, we had a, actually a walk-in uh, tin top last Thursday, <laughs> which we actually, we sat in the main dining room. Yeah. And which is a neat trick too, because we normally don't see more, more than eight people at one table. Yeah. Um, but We had it, made it happen. Um, the, the trick we have right now, and I'm going to give a nod to our general manager, Pierre, here. He is extremely organized in his standards and his service and his manuals and his training. But the training rotates because no matter how many times you say something, you're always going to see somebody making a mistake. There's always going to be some somebody new on staff that needs to be trained properly. So we go over these training sessions again and again. And some of them are as simple as how to carry a tray and how many glasses to put on a tray. But we have a standard for everything there. But the, the the moment you stop paying attention to it, that's the moment somebody forgets about it. Yeah, and then you know you end up spilling a tray of glasses on say an important credit from the New York Times.
2: Yeah. So how do you carry a tray?
3: Uh, usually, you want to use the tips of your fingers, which is going to distribute the weight evenly. Um, and then what happens is, if, as you're taking things from a tray, as an example, you're able to keep that balance. Um, one thing we notice, though, since we use like oversized wine glasses, the uh, Gary Denko used to have a term called lazy man's load. <laughs> You know, it's easier just to make two trips than it is to try to pack everything in one trip. And sometimes you see somebody, like, overloading a tray, and they're basically in for a disaster. It's going to be a disaster somewhere in the dish pit or on the way back because, you know, there's a lot of traffic through that restaurant. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's a, it's a matter of, okay, the trail fits seven glasses perfectly. If you try to fit eight, it's going to be a problem.
2: So what, what are a couple of, like, the more asinine uh, details that you guys actually train that to the untrained iron you wouldn't realize that this is part of protocol?
3: Well, uh, that is a good question to the untrained eye. um, Well, some of it, it, I'd say an asinine thing would be like what happened last night where we have a timing for how the food comes out of the kitchen. And we had a table last night who was literally eating their appetizers and one gentleman started complaining that the main courses weren't out yet. I don't even know how to deal with that. Yeah. But <laughs> like, like obviously the main course is not out yet because you're not cleared of the first appetizer and we haven't, you know, obviously we need to take the steps. We have to clear the table properly, crumb the table, mark the table with the new silverware, and then the team comes out and serves the food. Um but that to me was a little bit I I didn't know quite what the general was expecting. Are we supposed to put the food the next course right on top of the first course, yeah. you know? Um some things that people don't notice is And I guess this is maybe something I'm actually good at would be I try to make it look effortless during service. Like anything that's going on is not an effort. It's easy. We're taking care of it and the guest doesn't have any problem. But I, you know, honestly, I I, I quite honestly bust my ass in the afternoon to make sure it looks effortless because we take care of all the details. Then the special request and the prepaids and, Uh, the table request and the possible proposals and the extra desserts and you know we're going to find out what danielle wants to do for certain people so i i I make a point of getting all that information beforehand so when it gets down to service i have time to talk to people and schmooze
2: yeah so So what are a couple of the requests that you never saw coming that were unexpected
3: unexpected requests
2: because you have systems in place like you were saying before with buying a bottle of champagne for a table and you know right. getting that extra dessert and proposals but right you mustn't have systems for everything
3: well one thing that happened at, actually at cafe balloon is we had tables out on the sidewalk and a young gentleman wanted to uh, serenade his girlfriend so he had the reservation obviously inside the restaurant we couldn't really allow him to sing to the entire restaurant <laughs> Um but what we did is we set up a nice table outside for him got him some champagne sent like extra desserts and let him serenade her outside. He was still in front of five other tables and they they did give him a round of applause but I've never really asked had anybody asked me if they could serenade somebody at the table before. Yeah. Um some requests were not able to honor um a gentleman wanted us to film his brother proposing which we don't really film in the main dining room during service. So that's that's a request we really couldn't honor. Uh, And we didn't really have a table that was private enough to do that. So, I mean, that was just one of those, I'm sorry, this is, we can't allow it to happen. And on occasion, as a maitre d', part of it is you have to protect the dining room as a whole versus, you know, that one request that you, you know, can't really do.
2: Yeah. I mean, do you have a coveted table? Do you have the one that everyone goes for?
3: You know, it's highly subjective. We have people who come every week that sit uh, kind of on the balcony railing, overlooking the whole room. We have people that come every week that want to sit right in the middle of the room. Um, so, you know, the, it could be anywhere in the dining room. We have people who like to semi private alcoves. Mm-hmm. We have people who like to sit side by side on the banquette and these are all regulars. So to me, there's no, there's no coveted table because any table you name in that restaurant, there's at least one regular diner who wants that table all the yeah. time.
2: I mean, I personally like the bar and lounge.
3: Right. I I, I
2: I think it's a great place to sidle up and people don't think of that when going to Danielle.
3: Right. But, uh, right. I will. We, we talked about that as an option. I think sometimes people who frequent uh let's say cafe blue as an example they don't necessarily want to come to daniel because they feel like the dining room is a little too formal and maybe they don't want to wear a jacket and maybe they don't want to do the full prefix menu so i'm consistently talking to people about the bar and lounge come in relax have one course have two courses whatever you want you don't have to wear the jacket you can have a cocktail it's a little activity out there um and it's a kind of a different clientele in the bar and lounge than it is in the main dining room sometimes
2: yeah, yeah. You're talking about going from cafe to Danielle. That's a right. you know going from comfort to you know this higher level, higher right. class of food. When did you get your first taste of that? You mentioned you know first tasting foie, and you had told me you, you remember the point when you first had a sip of uh, Chevaux Blanc uh, right. twenty eight.
3: Well, uh, at Trotters actually, we had a, uh, a very competitive wine collectors who would come in and Charlie would throw these big dinners and they'd always try to outdo each other. So myself and quite a few other people were the beneficiaries of uh, of their generosity and letting us taste a lot of things. Um, I remember the exact first time I tasted foie gras we had it on the menu at Trotters and it was seared and somebody had it, it like an extra plate was made or something didn't get served and I was coming down the back stairwell and I thought I'm just going to eat this right now <laughs> and hopefully Charlie won't come around the corner yeah. uh, and he didn't and I thought it was like the most magical thing I've ever had in my life until I had uh, Wagyu beef for the first time before I think it was banned for a certain time but I had it for the first time in like 97, 98 and it was from a f- specific farm in Japan and it just blew my mind how good that was
2: so. I mean you have to have these flavor profiles too to be able to talk to the guests about the food. It's not just about managing
3: service. Right. Well, you know, the kitchen is very good at letting us try things as well. And certain things come back and forth in, in season. And, you know, it's one thing to have Gamecock, uh, I'm sorry, Woodcock on the menu. But it's another thing to know what it tastes like and have tried it before. And the kitchen is very good at letting us try these things. Yeah. It, it, a lot of those things are very, very unique flavors.
2: Yeah. but You also have an outstanding wine palette. You're a certified SOM
3: um, <laughs> well, I'm a little out of practice, I admit.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, what brought you to that? Why did you want to educate yourself about wine in that way?
3: Uh, you know, I started learning about it when I was in school, and I was 21, 22 years old, and I, I had no idea how a, a person actually learned about wine. And at the time, I think the only places you could take anything remotely related, related to wine as a class would be, I think, University of California and that system. Um, and I picked up a copy of the Wine Spectator, and I bought a $4 bottle of Cabernet, and <laughs> I just went from there and uh, I got lucky that I had a, an uncle who, who actually collected wine and you know I tried a few things with him but then when I started working for, for Charlie, he had that enormous grand award winning wine list and we poured some amazing things by the glass so it really, really opened up and I, I remember the first time I tried uh, the Tokayasu, like the, the five putonios and our sommelier at the time was a, a gentleman named Joe Spellman and he's now a master sommelier, but I remember like just going through and just being completely blown away at what, what this wine was and where it came from and how it was made. Um, but that's, you know, again, that's one of those like little benchmarks I, I just have in the back of my mind. Yeah. Well, uh,
2: cheeses too. You're you you you're a so-called expert in the artisanal.
3: We uh, we just did it on Sunday. We broke out the Riclette Grill and did yeah. a lot of melted <laughs> cheese with pickled vegetables. and. Yeah, that was fun. I had a, a chance for three years to run a cheese program at Gary Danko. And uh, we sold in the range of 110 cheese plates a night, and we had two carts going in a constant rotation. And I I think I got lucky in being in California when this artisanal cheese thing was really exploding. And two years in a row, I actually had cheese carts around the 4th of July that featured all-American cheeses from 25 different states. Not all of them very good, I admit. (laughs) Um, But I even had a cheddar from Alaska that just, you know, was, was okay. But I think the idea at the time was... To promote American cheeses, and it was kind of fun doing it during the Independence Day weekend.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, you've seen that in Danielle alone, from what was almost an all-Alsatian crew to, I mean, it's a worldly staff now. I mean, right. a lot of local boys too.
3: Yeah, if you, I guess, if somebody told Danielle back in like '94 that he was going to have a uh, chef sommelier from India <laughs> and a maître d' from Southern Indiana, he probably would have, you know flipped out or something. I have no idea what he would have done, but he, I don't think he would have believed it. Yeah. Um, but we do have a very international staff and, you know, it's, we, we, we also, uh, to take care of that, we do things to be fair. Like we translate the menus uh, into, uh, French and English and Spanish as an example. If we have a person that speaks, uh, like Japanese on staff, then they're going to like try to translate it to, uh, for somebody on staff to tell us what it would be in Japanese. Um, it helps actually with the international clientele and, we know if somebody's speaking Spanish, as an example, we're going to give them a Spanish speaking captain. Uh, we know when people want to sp- have a French speaking captain, we, we have uh, a couple people from Eastern Europe that can speak, um, uh, Polish or Romanian or Russian. And, and that really helps us. Yeah. Cause we, we get a lot of people who don't speak English. Yeah. No, so, talk
2: about an actual melting pot.
3: Yeah. It's the most diverse place I've ever worked. Yeah. It's uh, bar none. Yeah. So
2: all there rooted in classical French. Right. <laughs> right. Excellent. Well, thank you, John, for being on the show. Uh, just, I'm glad that everyone knows there's a lot more behind the man that is the maitre D. I
3: <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
2: Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.